0: Would please turn to the Acts of the Apostles chapter 9 I'll be reading Acts 9 verses 1 through 19 But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. The men who were traveling with him, and stood, they stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might receive his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, historical word. In this room, there are thieves, liars, those of us who practice sexual immorality, homosexuality, Blasphemers, all kinds of wickedness, us. None of us went to the bottom of the barrel in sin like this man we will read about look at again this morning. And not only that, Almighty God who created you purposed for that to be. So that you will know through the salvation of Saul of Tarsus. No one is outside hope of the Lord saving them. Let's pray. So, Father, I ask that you bless us with ears to hear, with an attentiveness of mind, Thoughts and heart this morning that no distractions float into the minds of your people but that we see this pivotal encounter for what it is and may we love your ways through it to the glory of your holy, holy name We arrived at Acts nine, and Paul. As I thought about it, as I thought about it, sitting here this morning, worshiping it, I just think it is absolutely non-debatable that no human writer in history. Has had as much influence upon me than this bloodthirsty, wicked, murderous man who had a passion to kill persons just because they believed in Jesus. There are particular days in the history of the world. December 7th, 1941. Hope you know what that is. Pearl Harbor. Attacked. June. Gosh, I think it's June 6th. 44, right? D-Day. Those are significant days. But they pale in comparison to particular significant days. Like the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. Jesus. Like the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, like the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and like our passage on Damascus Road this morning. Besides the appearances of Jesus in His resurrection to the twelve apostles and to many, many other men and women over a period of about a month and a half, this encounter that we look at this morning, this transformation of Saul from the city of Tarsus is the most convincing proof of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And through it, we will see God's sovereign control over the most hard-hearted of sinners. And we will see that it was purposed and meant to be a great encouragement for all of us who come to Jesus for eternal life. For even the most... God-hating, blasphemer. Here's the question that is being answered in our passage this morning. How in the world did the most militant, violent opponent of Jesus violent opponent of Christians who believed in Jesus, how did he become the most fervent advocate of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? How did he end up being the man who would write 13 of the 21 letters in the New Testament? That's what Luke tells us. So who is he? He was a scholar, very well educated, as a theologian, and then since the crucifixion and the, the resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and what's going on, all these fellow Jews in Jerusalem were becoming Christians, it turned this scholar, says now his occupation is to persecute the church. That's who he is. Luke has already introduced him to us in chapter 7 and chapter 8. In chapter 7, we saw that he was the main leader of the murder of the Christian Stephen as those witnessing took their cloaks off and laid them at Saul's feet. And in chapter 8, verse 3, Luke tells us, but Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And now, beginning in chapter 9, verses 1 to 2, Luke tells us, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder, Against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest Caiaphas and asked him for letters, official, religious, government letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to quote the way that's what they that's Christianity that's what it's called early on the way whether they're men or women, he might bring them from Damascus 140 miles back down to Jerusalem. Just for a moment. From Stephen's martyr, when the great persecution began, particularly with Saul leading it, to this day that we're reading about now, about two years have elapsed. Paul, And those with him, hating the Jesus doctrine, the church, loving Jesus, have been experiencing a pretty intense persecution for up to two years at this point. Saul is anywhere between age 28 and 35 years old. And now Luke says, gets back to him now, he is still breathing threats against the Christians. Why? Because he hated the church. He hated the Jesus teaching. Why? Because it was a threat to his whole way of life, a threat to his existence of who he was, a threat to his religion, to his self-perception as a works, righteousness Pharisee. And so, he goes to Caiaphas, the chief priest, and he gets official documentation with the authority to apprehend other Jews, now outside of the land of Israel, way up in Damascus, to take those Jews who believe in Jesus and bring them all the way to Jerusalem to stand before the Sanhedrin and be judged. Paul was desperate to make sure this teaching about Jesus as the Messiah Raised from the dead. He was desperate that it doesn't continue to spread further, even outside the land of Israel. See, Paul's belief system was deep. And it is amazing what our worldviews that you really hold to will do. We see it in our day and age. True believers put bombs at bus stops and on buses and in restaurants with people they don't even know will be blown to smithereens thinking they're serving God. Paul thought he was on God's side. But in fact, he was unregenerate. He was dead in his trespasses and sin the way he phrased it later. He was a rebel against the very God that he thought he was defending. and He was sincere. He thought, I'm serving God by persecuting Christians. Now, before we go back to the road to Damascus, I just want to sit on this so we don't miss what we're going to see here. I don't want us to miss the significance of what the Lord Jesus is doing. When Jesus decides to actually appear in His resurrection to Paul, and saving him, and making him not just a Christian, which He does... Like the week before last week, the Ethiopian unit comes to Christ. Great story. There's something different here because Jesus is also making this man a very personally sent apostle, which makes him with a kind of an authority that is on equal ground with Moses. He is Jesus' personal mouthpiece in a way no one today is. We only rely on their word. He's making him a revelatory spokesperson. On par with Moses, and David, and Isaiah and Jeremiah, and Daniel and Ezekiel, and Peter and Matthew. And John, that's what's happening. So if you would for a moment, I want you to turn to the book of Galatians chapter 1. Because after this road to Damascus experience, about 17 or 18 years later, this is what the Apostle Paul wrote. And now let me just get a little context he has planted a bunch of churches in the region of Galatia and all these different cities. And then other Jews come up who claim to believe in Jesus. Many them probably sincere, but their doctrine didn't mix with Paul's. They wanted Gentiles, non-Jews, to become Jews if they're ever going to be saved by Jesus. And Paul knew it was a twisting of the gospel, which is no gospel at all, and they also badmouthed Paul, saying he's just a Johnny come lately. He he was in Jerusalem learning the gospel under Peter and John, and like the rest, and like we Judaizers were doing. But then he kind of missed some points. So let's correct Paul a little bit. And Paul's saying, it's "Not true at all." So in verse eleven, he says this, chapter one in Galatians: "For I would have you know, brothers." That the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. What I mean is this. I did not receive it from any man. Nor was I taught it by any man. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He doesn't mean a revelation, ooh, I see you with my heart. No, he means God revealed the man, Jesus Christ, to me. He stood before me. That's what he's saying. That began, it began, didn't end, but it began on the Damascus Road. Paul is saying I was not under the instruction of any of the other apostles, but Jesus Himself taught me. The resurrected, glorified Jesus taught me. Then Paul goes on to say, not only that, You guys in Galatia, you have to understand there was no way in the world that Peter or John or James or even Stephen were going to persuade me through their arguments that I should believe in Jesus as the Messiah. It wasn't going to happen. That's what he says next, verse 13. For I would have, excuse me, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism. How I persecuted the church of God violently. And I tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism. Beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. That's Paul. That's Saul. That's the guy on the road to Damascus. Don't confuse Paul's Judaism with truly following the God of the Bible. Paul was not saying, I was a bad Jew because I did some bad things like persecuting Christians. That is not what he's saying. He is actually defining his brand of Judaism with the badge of I was a real good one because I was the chief persecutor of the church. He's saying my special brand of religion is that I wanted the church, this Jesus doctrine, to be destroyed. That's what he's saying. I persecuted the church of God violently I tried to wipe it out and this is what he says I was not retreating in my religion I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries those guys among my own age I excelled them all I was even more zealous for the traditions of our fathers and when Paul wrote that in Galatians, he means that's who I was. All the way, a hundred and thirty miles, not quite yet to Damascus, that's still who I was until the very moment the light from heaven surrounded me. He's saying, My advancing in Judaism, it confirms that there was no way in the world that I was slowly drifting toward becoming a Christian. But instead, I, Paul, was repulsed by it. Until that day. Until that day. That's what he goes on to say, chapter 1, Galatians, verse 15 and 16. He's referring to Damascus Road. But... When He who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by His grace, that's Damascus Road, He indeed was what? Pleased to reveal not like He revealed to any of us Christians by new birth here, which He does in new birth by the Spirit. He doesn't mean that here. He means the same resurrected Jesus who appeared in that room on that first Sunday night or over by the Sea of Galilee eating breakfast, the same one God chose to reveal to me. He was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. His whole point is that the resurrected Jesus appeared to him and made him an apostle, equal with the authority of the other apostles of Jesus. He is saying, I never went to the school of Peter or the school of John or James, but I went to the school of many personal appearances of Jesus himself, who personally instructed me. And all of that began on the road to Damascus. So here's Paul. They're close now to the city walls of Damascus. And he is still salivating over the thought of finding more Jews who believe this Jesus stuff. Because this was not some peripheral thing in his life. It went right to the core of who he was as a Jew in the theological camp of Phariseeism. Christianity, with its message of grace alone saves you, by faith in Jesus apart from any meritorious works you do, that was a direct threat to everything Paul stood for. It was a direct threat to his own self-perception of his purpose in life. This teaching, Christianity, the way Paul knew that. If that's true, if this keeps spreading, that will end all my boasting. He didn't want to end that. And so, this teaching, these people needed to be stamped out. That's where he's coming from. I just want you to hear one more before we go back. Listen to how this same man on the road to Damascus years later describes who he was before Jesus appeared to him. In Philippians 3 Verses 2 to 6, he says this. Look out for the dogs. It is a derogatory term. He's talking about those who, who essentially held to the same theological doctrine that he did in his life. And now they're infiltrating the church. we Jesus lovers, but you, you have to do this and that, really, in order to be saved. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil doers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh because they want you Gentiles who say you're going to come to faith in Jesus and be saved by God and your sins forgiven. Well, you can't do that unless you get circumcised. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision. That is, we who worship by the Spirit of God and we glory in Christ Jesus. And we put no confidence in the flesh. And then he says this, Though, before Damascus Road, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to my zeal, religiously serious, yeah, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But he was blind. He was deceived. He was spiritually dead to God in his sin. And on the road to Damascus, just in a moment, Jesus is about to raise him from the dead and to awaken his heart to see the truth himself. And to awaken in his heart a joy that he never could have imagined. That's why the very next thing, if you're still there in Philippians 2, the very next thing Paul says then in Philippians 2 is this, but, I mean, that's who I was, but this is how Jesus changed him. But whatever gain like all that stuff he just listed. I was the chief of them. It's a the leader of them. But whatever gain I had I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything is loss because of the surpassing value or worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as trash in order that I may gain Christ. And that I may be found in Him, not, not having a, a righteousness of my own derived from the law, like he just said, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. He said, no, I got rid of that. I don't want that. That will lead to hell. No, no, no. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness not from me, under the law, but the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's who He was. It's who He is as He draws close to Damascus. He is still in His unregenerate state. And while in His unregenerate, state, the goodness, the mercy, the grace, the love of God toward this wretched, murderous sinner was there. And that God who chose Paul before he was born and was sovereign over everything that man did to Christians is about to act. Verse 3, chapter 9 of Acts. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus And suddenly, suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him. This was not in response to anything Paul did. Or to anything he deserved. Paul describes that same thing Luke describes it here in the third person about it, right? Later on, Luke lets us know in chapter 22 of Acts, or excuse me, chapter 26, when Paul's before King Agrippa, Paul describes it this way. At midday, so we know it's about 12 noon is when this happened. At midday, O King, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. So this supernatural light from heaven caused Paul to fall to the ground. Verse 4. And falling to the ground, Luke says, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you? Lord, it's not like he knows it's Jesus. He knows this is a God event though. Lord, who are you? What are you talking about? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So here, fear strikes Paul with a supernatural event of the light shining, and then the Savior speaks directly to Paul. Actually, let me even say it more clearly, what the text says. The Savior, in mercy, speaks directly to Paul's sin. Why are you persecuting me? Why are you killing my people? Why are you imprisoning my people? You touch my people, you do it to me. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's huge. You see, because for anybody in this room and for Paul himself on the road to Damascus to willingly come to the Savior, a person must come to the conviction of their own personal sin and guilt before God. It is a prerequisite for repentance, for faith in Jesus' atonement for one's sins. And so here's Paul on that road, and this is Jesus himself, the resurrected, glorified man Appearing to Paul, <coughs> and he's saying, Joe, Joe, put your own name in there and hear it, Peter, Peter, Saul, Saul. That repetition saying the name twice in a row in Scripture, it is showing the Lord's tender concern. For Saul, Martha, Martha, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Saul, Saul. Paul believed he was serving God by trying to stamp out Christianity, stamp out Christians, teaching that this Jesus from Nazareth is the Messiah, and that he died somehow like an atoning sacrifice in the temple. He died for sins, and God raised him from the dead. This was clearly hogwash to Paul a moment before. And now, In trembling, he asked the question, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. What happened in Paul's heart at that moment? The very man whom the people that Paul was after to imprison and to kill, he's been doing it for two years, the one they believed in and said he's raised from the dead, was in fact very much alive. Standing before him with infinite power. This was sovereign grace. Jesus did not appear to Paul because he pulled the right levers to get him to do it. Or that he deserved it. Jesus did not have the Holy Spirit go down and regenerate Paul's heart along with that appearance in those moments because Wow, look at that. Paul believes in me. Let's go get him born again. It's not how it happens. It happens the other way. Jesus was in total control on the Damascus road. Out of the blue, God caused the light to shine. Out of the blue... The resurrected Jesus who had ascended to the right hand of God was sent to appear to Paul in all of His resurrected glory. And he saw Him so much that that light of Christ blinded him for the next three days. When Jesus speaks to Paul, He didn't ask Paul, would you please believe in me now? Come on. Be good for you. It's a better life to live. None of that. None of it. He just said, I am Jesus. Whom you are persecuting. And then he told him what to do. Jesus, whom you're persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Jesus is not wondering if Paul will somehow come to choose to believe in Him. He knows absolutely that He will. Because it was planned from before the foundation of the world that he would. That's how Paul himself said it back in Galatians 1, you remember? But when he, who had set me apart before I was born, literally from my mother's womb, it's this Jeremiah language, before Paul, came into existence God chose him set him apart for what to be his to be a believer and to be an apostle it could not not happen But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me... Before he's born, he's set apart. Why didn't you call him at age six? Or just at least 18? He's roughly about the same age as Jesus. Why didn't you just call him to yourself before that? We could have avoided maybe a lot of more pain here in the church because he didn't want to. He's got his reasons. He has his purposes. But because he was set apart, there will come a time he's called like any of us who believe. Now, it's because we were called. That's an experience that happens in time and space based upon something prior to that. Choosing. And on the Damascus road then, it's time. Before he gets into the city of Damascus, go get him, Jesus. That's what he says. Before I was born, and the one who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. Paul is unique. He's unique because God set him apart for a particular task from the foundation of the world. And what we just saw here on the Damascus Road, it was not just a private, internal, religious experience of Paul. The creator of the universe, who became a human being, suffered and died for sins, and rose from the dead, the very incarnate, resurrected man, supernaturally appeared to him so that the other Christian-hating fellow Jews around him who were traveling with him saw. Not all of it, but the supernatural event was very clear to them also. Look at verse 7. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. Hearing meaning because they heard the voice. But they didn't see what Paul saw. They saw the light. They didn't see Jesus. Seeing no one. In other words, this freaked them out. They were speechless. They heard the voice of Jesus but they could not make out the words that he actually spoke to Paul. Sort of like Charlie Brown's teacher. But they heard it. They just didn't know the words, what were said. They were meant for Paul's ears. They couldn't see Jesus, but they saw the light. Now, why do I say all that? Well, because chapter 22, verse 9, when Paul retells this story, he says this. Now, those who were with me saw, they saw with their own eyes, the light. But they did not understand the voice. Okay, They heard the voice, they didn't understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. Now, Luke continues on in the story, verses 8 and 9. So Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, wide open, he saw nothing. He's blind. So they led him by the hand, that is all the men that were with him, I don't know if there's four of them, or if there's fourteen of them, doesn't say. He's probably closer to fourteen. I mean, they're going on a mission to apprehend people. They led him by the hand, and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was blind or without sight and neither ate nor drank. Paul is now an utterly changed man. There is a holy fear that's filling him. Now, whether When he got to Damascus, Paul purposed, Oh, I should fast and pray now. I actually doubt it. The pray part, yeah. But that he says, I should fast with that? I don't even think he had that thought. I just think he lost his appetite. That's what usually happens with us human beings when some traumatic events happen. The death of a a loved one, this unexpected. Did you even eat for the last three days? The guy's world was rocked. He is praying. He's praying. We'll see that very clearly in a second. Oh God. Oh God, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what have I done? He's thinking about Stephen, and Jacob and Marthas, and whoever else, and families he's ripped apart. That he got everything so wrong. What have I done? What does this mean? He said to me, I am Jesus. I'm your he's praying. And that's when Jesus then involves a Christian man there in Damascus, a Jewish Christian, named Ananias. Pick up in verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision. So again, it seems like the Lord appeared to him in a vision. Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. If it ever happens, I guess that's the right thing to say. And the Lord said to him, I want you to get up, rise, and I want you to go to the street. It's called Straight. And on that street, there's a house, Judas's house. I want you to go to that house and look for a man who's from the city of Tarsus, whose name's Saul. For behold, that's why I think that behold is there, this exclamation, behold, he is praying. I would be, he has seen Ananias. He's seen in a vision a man named Ananias. That's you. He's seen him come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Okay, boom. Now, just three days before that, this Saul man would have loved to have apprehended Ananias. And jailed him. And then dragged him away from his family back to Jerusalem. And if he gets killed on the way, ah, what the heck. Accidents do happen. And Ananias knew this. And so he's somewhat fearful about the instruction of the Lord Jesus. So in verse 13, pick up. But Ananias answered, Lord I've heard from many about this man. All the Christians in town have. They've been talking about it. They know. The guy's got papers. Authority. I've heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here in Damascus, he has authority from the chief priest to bind everybody he can find who call on your name, Jesus? And Jesus' simple response to Ananias is Go. Verse 15. But the Lord said to him Go, because this Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so Jesus' explanation is good enough for Ananias. He trusts his Lord. And so this Christian man obeyed the supernatural vision found the street, called straight, and went. Verse 17. So Ananias departed, and he entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, that's the body of Christ. This man wanted to kill me three days ago, but now he's forgiven. He is loved by God and my Savior Jesus. This man is in Christ and Christ is in him. We are brothers. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be Filled with the Holy Spirit. Whew. And immediately. Something like scales. Fell from his eyes. And he regained his sight. Then. He rose. And was baptized. And taking food. He was strengthened. Saul was. changed. He was born again. He knew now the Lord. He believed in Him and he loved Jesus, the one whom he used to persecute and blaspheme. And then he more than happily went public with his confession. The biblical way. By being baptized. For people who do not understand the gospel of grace. Who do not understand and grasp the depths of their own sinfulness and sinful dark hearts. Paul's conversion would be utterly shocking to them. But God, He chose to ransom one of the most unlikely human beings ever to come to faith in Christ. And He chose to do that so that that Christian hating, Christian murdering, Christian imprisoning man would be the main theologian of church history. The main Christian theologian of church history. The former persecutor of Jesus' people. And Paul, throughout his earthly journey here, never got over. And there were still parts of him that cringed when you read his writings. that I was a persecutor of the church. How could I, in any way? Why am I so fortunate to have the Lord and even this ministry? But nevertheless, I do. He was never tired of such love and mercy from his Savior. He would later write in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world in order to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world in order to shame the strong. And so, let me close where I began. And where I'm leading here is this. This man who wrote 13 letters in the New Testament, I'm going to go to a portion of Scripture and let this very man encourage us here today. He uses his own Damascus Road experience, his very unlikely conversion to Christ, to encourage us. If you were a Christian in the first century, right after Stephen's murder there in Jerusalem, would you be waking up every morning with with hope that Saul of Tarsus, that, oh, there's hope, don't worry about it, we're going to convert this guy to Jesus, he'll come to Jesus. No, none of us would. would Furthest thing from our mind. What about right now, though? What about people that you know in this world right now? What about wayward children? Parents? Siblings? Friends? Many of them, who in no way are making any kind of apparent move towards slowly being softened to the gospel that saves through Jesus Christ, but instead are more and more vicious in their attitudes towards Christians and towards the church, particularly in our country and in our culture today, where up is down and down is up, where science... Throw that out the door. There's no such thing as male and female anymore. But Bible people, faithful Christians say no. God has spoken in Scripture. There are males and there are females. And science is clearly spoken. No, all... Homosexual activity is by definition sin, no matter what you call it. And all heterosexual sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage is sin. We can go on and on. We're in a day and an age where the viciousness out there towards traditional people who just hold to the book, if you hold to it, you're called a bigot. You're called intolerant. You're called vicious and a hater. Is there hope for those people? Yes. Look at Damascus Road. Don't give up praying. Paul's conversion is meant to give hope. To his people. Hope that Jesus can dig down into the deepest, darkest, most horrific sinful souls. And save them. Now I get this from Paul himself. In First Timothy chapter 1 verses 13 to 16. He's an older man now. And listen to what he says. Though, formerly, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor of the church, an insolent, nasty, in other words, opponent of Christ and Christianity, but I received Mercy. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. What He just said is, God sovereignly grabbed me and put me into Christ. And that's where I found love for Jesus and faith in the Gospel. And then He says, The saying is trustworthy. And it's deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world in order to save sinners. Don't miss this next line. Of whom I, Paul, am the foremost. The worst of all sinners. And he's right. It does not get worse than having the right book and having a sinful heart twisted into something it's not. Something that you would take to glorify yourself and boast in your works. And then, because of that, when the Jesus doctrine of His resurrection and mercy, you actually act to kill and to murder and to imprison those who believe it. It doesn't get darker. He came into the world to save sinners of whom I, Paul, am the chief or the foremost. Now listen to him. He says, I receive. Mercy for this reason. There's a reason? Here's at least a reason. Because Paul says it right here by the Holy Spirit. I received mercy for this reason. And here comes the reason. So that in me, as you read the road to Damascus, So that in me, as the foremost, the chief, the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. Paul just said, his unlikely conversion on the road to Damascus, when Jesus did that, he had you and me in mind. The most unlikely people to be converted that you can think of in your mind, in your life, they can be. The foremost of sinners was brought savingly to Jesus by the power and the will of God. And that means hope in our evangelism. It means hope for loved ones, hope for lost adult children. And it means for us believers who are undone and still sin and battle against it and you lean on First 1 John 1, nine, for He is faithful and He is righteous to forgive me of all my sins as we confess them. Look to Paul. He says, Jesus says, this is what I want to show you. You can't go lower than that. And I made Him into an apostle. Don't doubt my word and don't doubt my forgiveness and don't doubt that I will see you through to the end, dear believer. It is very nice like we saw last week when God is working on the soul and the heart and the mind of particular persons slowly drawing their hungry for Christ and then He sends one of us Christians like He did Philip to go go pick that fruit off that tree and you tell them the gospel and they just soak it up and their life is changed. It's wonderful. But don't give up hope on those who show none of that but even show animosity toward Jesus animosity towards the gospel, towards the church, towards the Christian worldview, towards biblical sexual ethics. Don't give up. Because Paul is the example. And toward us who believe and we still sin, here's his message. Jesus used me, Paul, as an example to demonstrate how deeply patient He is. That's one of the main things that we are meant purposefully by Christ Himself to see. Jesus' patience towards Saul of Tarsus is an example to those who were to and do believe in Jesus for eternal life. Let's pray. Father, I pray that one simple prayer for all of us in here, whether in Christ or out, those out would come in by Your grace, those of us in will take away from this morning your profound, personal, deep, saving love for us sinners. To the glory of your name. Amen.